Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the wonderful chapter of the resurrection of the dead, for which we are very thankful. Amen. And we shall not be moved from this great promise and prophecy of Scripture by God's mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58 verses about the resurrection of dead bodies, physical bodies to be glorified at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that they will be fit for heaven. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. Wonderful statements in this chapter. I want one verse, though. And it's the 33rd verse, which we use many times, many times, more often than not, applying it to other situations than what it was originally intended, though the principle is valid in many perspectives or situations. 1 Corinthians 15.33, be not deceived. Be not deceived. We've seen the deception take place. We can read about it in Corinth and we've seen it ourselves with those who have worshipped among us. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. The evil communications in this context are that some declared that there was no resurrection of the dead in the twelfth verse. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and he was so preached by our brother Paul and the apostles, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Those are the evil communications. Corrupt good manners. The good manners being the doctrine and practice of the apostles given to the New Testament church. We want to deal with some other aspects of evil communications today, that we would be established in our good manners of adoring the Lord Jesus Christ and Him only, trusting Him and Him only for salvation, believing and proving from the Bible that the great events of the Lord's return, the resurrection of the dead, the great day of judgment, and the renovation of the universe are yet future. And we're going to prove them a particular way that God has directed me to show you. And we've already started this process, but we want to continue it. And I hope that you will trust me for the reminders and the review and the repetition, because that's how you learn so that I don't have you caught unawares, not being able to refute such ridiculous hallucinations and heresies of the preterists. Futurism is that school of prophetic interpretation that takes all the prophecies of the Bible, especially those of the New Testament, and puts them in the future. That is why it is called futurism. That's the left-behind crowd. They're also Zionists because they're lovers of modern Israel and do everything they can in their power to help those Christ-haters in the Middle East. Preterism is the opposite ditch surrounding the road of truth. And that is a Latin word that means past, where all the prophecies of the Bible, especially the New Testament, have already been fulfilled, including the four I just mentioned, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the great day of judgment, and the renovation of the heavens and the earth. Amazing. It's already been, it's already happened. 2,000 years ago, 
almost. That's preterism. Then there's historicism, which if we have to give ourselves a label, we just want to be Bible Christians. But if we have to give ourselves a label for someone that's asking, we are historicists, meaning that we hold the school of continual prophetic fulfillment through history. That there are some prophecies that were fulfilled in 70 A.D., Obviously, Jesus said that armies would come around the city of Jerusalem and dig a trench and close it in on every side and lay it level with the ground and tear the temple down stone by stone. And those prophecies were obviously fulfilled in 70 A.D. Yet, we believe that the four great events mentioned twice already are still in the future. And that there are some prophecies being fulfilled right now and through modern History, by modern, I meaning the last days since the first coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 is not an issue. For historicists and others, preterists and futurists, understand in part or in whole that some of the prophecy there about the great tribulation surrounding the city of Jerusalem was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now there's a whole lot of variations in these schools of prophetic interpretation, but we are dealing with the general body of beliefs held by each school. We want to turn now to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I am very privileged to share with you the truth of Daniel 7. It is a forgotten chapter, and it is a corrupted and perverted chapter by both futurists and preterists. In reading one serious partial preterist in recent weeks, listen to this, and I'm sorry for the ignorance on their part, but Daniel 7 is about Vespasian. 2 Thessalonians 2 is about Titus. And Revelation is about Nero. It's so sad to come up with three different enemies of the church, none of which meet a single one of the descriptors. Amazing. It's so sad because this particular commentator and defender of some of the things that we believe is so far amiss and so far off the beaten path of truth. Daniel chapter 7. Now, brethren, I know we have been here before. And I know how many times I ask you to read Daniel 7 in your home. And there is a reason for it. God has conveyed to us a body of truth about the man of sin and the little horn of Rome that is nearly lost in the world today. It is very frustrating and very angering to read about the futurists and the preterists talking about each other and basically ignoring the road of truth that lies between their two ditches. When you can come up with a scheme of prophetic interpretation that ignores and does not have a place for the greatest enemy of Bible Christianity, measure it any way you wish. How about the extent of its 
its duration? How about the extent of its heresies? How about the degree of its heresies? How about the number of its heresies? You can measure Rome, the Church of Rome, Roman Catholicism, and their popes any way you wish. There's no enemy that even comes close. There's no delusional aspect in Islam, Hinduism, or Buddhism. And yet, Daniel and 2 Thessalonians 2 and the book of Revelation describe wolves in lambs' clothing appearing as false prophets. And the deception, the delusions, the lying wonders, those other isms don't have any of those things. Measure it any way you wish. And what is a shame is that the pulpits in this country just a few decades ago understood this. And they raised the gospel trumpet against that enemy. This nation was forged out of the fires of papal persecution in Europe, and yet the nation has forgot it, even by those that should remember it best, Christians. I remind you of Fox's Book of Martyrs, that you ought to read it and see about the extent of pagan persecutions of Christians versus papal persecutions of Christians. Which one lasted the longest? Which one killed the most? And which one drove Christians into hiding? And on and on we could go. I want to remind you that the Protestant denominations like Lutherans and Presbyterians understood who the man of sin was until a few years ago. I want you to know that in your preface to your King James Bible, those translators wrote King James I of England and the sixth of Scotland and told them that they were thankful for his love of the Word of God and his desire to have it translated for all the people in his kingdom, empire, and nation to read that they had he had dealt a blow to the man of sin that he would not recover from. By the Spirit of the mouth of the Lord, by the preaching of the gospel, and the wide dissemination of Scripture, freed the souls of men from the bondage of Roman Catholicism. It goes on to describe those popish persons that would stand in opposition to the King James Bible. There was no doubt in the past about the identity of the little horn of Daniel 7 and the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2 and the great whore of Revelation 17 and the beast that carried her into power. This nation, as recently as 1960, in considering its democratic nomination for the presidency of our country, did not think that John F. Kennedy was electable because of his religion. Just as there are questions about a governor, Mitt Romney, being a Mormon and his electability, there were questions severe in 1960 that John F. Kennedy could not pull it off because he was a Catholic and this nation in as a whole and in general hated Catholicism. It understood the papal persecution and the fornication with the kings of the earth and the subversive efforts of that church to overthrow governments which it had done for the 1,200 years of the Dark Ages. The people that came to the shores of this country came in the early days to escape the persecuting powers in Europe. What has happened? Truth is almost gone from the earth. 
in so many respects. So many of the things that we believe are no longer held, but by a very, very few throughout the earth. When we consider preterism, that school of prophetic interpretation that puts those four great events in the past and leaves nothing for us in the future, at least as defined by those four events, I want to show you different ways to prove them wrong. And while proving them wrong, I do have a secret agenda. And it's to remind you of things that we believe and that are nearly lost about true prophetic interpretation. Because I want you established in the truth so that you cannot be led astray. And I want us to be defenders of that truth when we speak and in our homes and on our website and from this pulpit. I could help you very much with PowerPoint slides because you have a severe disadvantage. You live in the southern states of the United States. You live in what's called the Bible Belt. So you don't think of Catholicism as being very pervasive because you don't understand the world. Because you were raised in a unique part of the world where there's always five or ten times as many Baptist churches in a given area than there are Catholic churches. But all you have to do is go 500, 400, maybe 300 miles north, and things change drastically. Then the largest church and the most numerous churches are Catholic. It's a shame because you do not fully appreciate the extent of that religious system. Out of the 2.1 or 2.2 billion people that on earth today, one-third of the population of 6.7 billion, they claim to be Catholics. Out of that 2.2 billion, 1.1 billion are Roman Catholics. There's only 50 billion, I said, I meant trillion, 1.1 trillion Catholics compared to I meant billions. Forgive me. Forgive me. 1.1 billion out of a 6.7 billion population with only 50 million Baptists worldwide. So there's 20 Catholics for every Baptist. And then you add in the Orthodox churches, which are just variations of the Catholic church, and that ratio starts running up to 30 to 1, and then it gets to near 40 to 1. And these numbers are important for you to understand how pervasive it is still in other places, though its temporal power of reigning over the governments of the world has been greatly diminished. And though its syllabus of errors that it promulgated 150 years ago has basically been forgotten, and that is that no scientist and no politician or anyone can ever come up with anything not approved by the Church of Rome... Or it's going to be a heresy. And on and on they go. We live in the South, and so we don't appreciate it. And when you find someone that doesn't understand the role of Roman Catholicism in the Bible, there's two problems. They haven't read the Bible carefully. And two, they were raised in a part of the country where they don't understand its role in the history of the world. They forget that there was a dark ages or they have sworn off knowing anything about history or any other subject. And so they go with an empty vacuum into the word of God and they come out with heresies. Right. Because the Bible is written for us to recognize prophecies as they are fulfilled. Right. 
And some of those things are so easy with the fulfillments that we have seen in the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. Daniel chapter 7. This is where, this is one of the places we go to refute preterism. I'm not off track. I'm just extending the railroad into other territory in order for me to make sure you understand Daniel 7. First, we refuted preterism by showing the promises of the gospel are clear enough and delineated enough with details that they have not been fulfilled in 70 A.D. And I hope you remember that. That you will go to places like Acts chapter 1 to prove that Jesus Christ will return the same way that He left. Number two, we proved that their little timing phrases, their little mantras of at hand and so forth, can be proven from the Bible not to demand imminency. That is, that the Lord has to return by 70 A.D. And we proved that point 20 or 30 different ways. Now we come to this point. Preterism refuted by Daniel. And I love this point. Because if you'll learn this chapter, it'll refute more than preterism. And it's a wonderful chapter because we are Gentiles and it describes world history from a Gentile standpoint from Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the Babylonian Empire to the eternal state of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ in their eternal kingdom with Jesus Christ their Savior and the Ancient of Days. The whole spectrum is right here in one chapter. The book of Revelation is simply an expansion and a commentary upon this one chapter. This is, wor- this is Gentile world history from the beginning to the end. Right. Preterists should start in Daniel. Jesus said that Daniel gave understanding for prophetic interpretation. He said that in Matthew 24 and he said that in Mark 13. Daniel's timing would correct their efforts to force Paul's prophecies, Peter's prophecies, and John's prophecies into the first century. When I say Paul's prophecy, do you know what chapter I'm talking about? 2 Thessalonians 2. When I say Peter's prophecy, do you know what chapter I'm talking about? 2 Peter chapter 3. When I say John's prophecies, do you know what book I'm talking about? The book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 7, look at it. Do you understand it? If I was to take you and blindfold you, spin you around three times, and leave you standing in a dark room, and I said to you, what is in Daniel chapter 4 would you know? The testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. If I was to say what's in Daniel chapter 1, would you know that it's Daniel purposing in his heart that he would not be defiled with the king's meat? If I said Daniel chapter 9, would you know? The prophecy of 70 weeks, strictly Jewish, strictly 490 years. If I said Daniel 8, remember, you're standing and wobbling in a dark room, blindfolded, having been spun around three times. What's Daniel 8 about? The little horn that grew out of a horn of the Greek empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, and his defiling of the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem for how long? I forgot. I speak as a fool. 2,300 days. If I said Daniel 7, do you know what it's about? 
a little horn growing out of the fourth beast after there were already ten horns there. Did you notice, are you listening carefully enough, when Revelation 17 was read in your hearing this morning, that the beast that the great whore rode into power had how many horns? Ten. Because there's no need for an eleventh, because in Revelation 17, the eleventh horn has taken on the symbol of the woman herself. Can you grasp that? Okay. Remember, the woman is riding on the beast with ten horns. Daniel 7, look at this chapter. It's got two divisions, putting it in three parts. And these parts are pretty easy because they're all the same thing. 1 through 14 is what Daniel saw in his vision and what he wrote down. Verses 15 through 22 are Daniel asking a man standing there, an angel, for explanation of what he saw And in his question to the angel of what he would like explained, he just basically repeated the prophecy. Then the angel explains the prophecy, beginning in verse 23 where it says, Thus he said, and he explained it. So Daniel 7 is 25 verses long, and it could be shorter, but the Lord made it this way. And I love the way the Lord made everything. Verses 1 through 14 are what Daniel saw and what he wrote down. Gentile history from the Babylonian Empire to the eternal kingdom. Verses 15 through 22, Daniel restates it by asking the angel, help me understand it. And then the angel explains it. Verses 23 through 28. And hitherto is the end of the matter. And the cogitations much troubled Daniel. Now if you get an email from Chris Carnell and he speaks of the cogitations that are going on inside him about some batch he has at Custom Synthesis, you'll know where he got that word from because he's a Bible reader. And those are your mental thoughts are churning around, cogitating on what Daniel just saw because Daniel just saw a timeline and a panorama of Gentile history. Now we go here to prove preterism wrong because preterism says that all prophecies were fulfilled by 70 A.D., and there's not one outside that limitation. Especially do we want to consider that in light of the Son of Man coming, and of a great day of judgment. Do we have both of those in Daniel 7? Now you've read them three times, I would hope by now, that some of these statements in here are sinking in. They are there in this chapter. And they're way past 70 A.D. And we prove it from Daniel 7. The fulfillment of prophecies in the book of Daniel are so helpful to understand prophecy that if preterists would start here, they could look at the fulfillments of the prophecies about Babylon, the fulfillments of the prophecies about Media Persia, and the fulfillments of the prophecies about Greece, and they would learn how to interpret Bible symbols used by the prophets for their prophecies. I want to show you. What's Daniel 9 about? Now I just told you. How's your short-term memory? Daniel 9. The 70 weeks of Daniel. How long is that? 490 years. 70 weeks is only one and a third years. How do you know that it's 490 years and not literally 490 weeks? 
It has to be because of what factor? History. History. Isn't that something? History. We need history in order to prove that the day-year principle stands for prophetic interpretation as an option in Daniel chapter 9. Look at it. Daniel chapter 9. No, you don't need to understand it equal to someone who's got to go to war about it on a periodic basis, but I want you to understand it enough that you cannot have stolen from your consciousness what's been stolen from the consciousness of 99.99% of all other Christians in the world today. And I don't refer to the Christians that are Catholics. I'm referring to Baptists. They do not understand the little horn of Rome. They wouldn't even know where to find it. They wouldn't even know it's the little horn of Rome. They might think that it's Henry Kissinger or President Obama. They've been doing this for 200 years as the knowledge of the truth was taken away from the churches of Jesus Christ. Daniel 9, it's beginning in verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And I have preached this passage to you before, but I want you to understand that 70 weeks is only one, a little over one and a quarter years, if we take it literally. But if we apply the day-year principle, which means for each day in the prophecy, we assume a year. Then we have 70 weeks of years. It doesn't say anything about years here. It just says 70 weeks. But we understand that by knowing that the events that are here could not have been fulfilled in one and a quarter years. Therefore, the day-year principle must apply. You know, what's that worth? Listen, I should pass a plate. I speak as a fool. These things are worth... This, this is, these are the treasures that God gives us. But now the day-year principle is not to be applied to all prophecies. Because we come back to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now what's it about? I forgot again. Short-term memory lapse. Antiochus Epiphanes. A little horn out of a horn of Greece. Remember, when Alexander the Great died, his empire was broken up into four parts. Two of those parts were the Seleucid kingdom with a capital in Syria and the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Ptolemies, in Egypt. That's where Cleopatra came from. Yes, she was a Ptolemy. And so we had the Seleucids, the kings of the north, and we had the Ptolemies, the kings of the south. And they fought each other because they wanted to try to restore Alexander's great empire under their rule. And who happened to be in between those two kingdoms? The Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. Israel. So we get to read a lot about it in Daniel chapters 11 and 12. And there's a detail in there about one certain king that rose who defiled the temple in Jerusalem by bringing whores in and setting up a brothel in it and putting up a statue of one of their gods and offering pigs uh, and on the altar and splashing swine blood on everything in the temple. And so Daniel chapter 8 is about that, and it tells us how long that defiled temple would exist, how long that defiling of the temple would be in place And it is described in verse 14, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. 
2,300 days is around six and a half years. Now it tells us in this Daniel chapter 8 that this is contained within the Greek empire. Look at verse 21. The rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it. That's the four kingdoms that made up the remains of the Alexandrian empire. Four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. They wouldn't be great like he was. And in the latter time of their kingdom, kingdom singular, the Seleucids, Antiochus IV of the Seleucid dynasty stood up. He was a king of fierce countenance. And he defiled the temple. And the Maccabees cleansed the sanctuary after six and a half years. And that is called today the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. And it is a feast that the Lord Jesus Christ attended in John chapter 10 and verse 20 because it was a feast in the winter and there was no Mosaic feast in the winter. Now, do you understand that you have a job if you don't believe or understand the things I'm telling you already because you have an advantage that those in Berea did not have in Acts 17.11. You can go home and punch into a Google search box anything you wish and pull up what you need to. You have an online Bible program paid for by this church and directed by the pastor of this church to give you the means to hold me to the fire about these things. If they're not true, you should receive them with all readiness of mind, and then you should search the Scriptures to see that these things are truly so. Now, here's a day is for a day. Do you know what happens when a man with a Bible and a concordance goes into his closet and prays? His name is William Miller. He goes into the closet and starts to pray. He sees 2,300. That's got to be day years. So it's got to be 2,300 years. When do I start the 2,300 years? Well, why don't I use Daniel 9? 456 B.C., when Cyrus told the Jews they could go rebuild Jerusalem. And then, instead of the sanctuary being cleansed, let me describe it as the second coming of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable corruption of the Bible. 456 B.C., add 2,300 years, 1844 A.D., the Lord's going to return, absolutely turning Daniel 8 upside down. Now, if he would have just read a few commentaries by Bible believers who feared God, and with a little bit of wisdom to throw out the bones, he would have been able to understand exactly what Daniel 8 was about. Now, really, you shouldn't need a commentary. Daniel 8's just a little too simple. But that's the Seventh-day Adventists, and it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. They all come from William Miller prophesying that Jesus would return in 1844. When he didn't, it was called the Great Disappointment for the Seventh-day Adventists. And out of and then Ellen White had to come along and say that Jesus did come back. He came back invisibly, and he cleansed the heavenly sanctuary, which you didn't get to see. Now, it was an earthly sanctuary that was defiled, but it's a heavenly sanctuary that was cleansed, and there they go with their heavenly cleansing. Then the Jehovah's Witnesses came along with some of the disgruntled followers of that Adventist movement, and that's where both of those cults got started.
Now the Seventh-day Adventists, in many of their prophetic interpretations, like Daniel chapter 7, line up with us. Because they're historicists in that respect. respect. But remember, the Seventh-day Adventists didn't even get started until 1850. And before 1850, Little Horn of Rome and Daniel 7 being the papacy was understood by nearly all Christians. Right. It has nothing to do with the Seventh-day Adventists giving us a thing. Except a great example in Daniel chapter 8 of how not to read the Bible. You say, what'd you go through all that for? I want you to understand what you can learn by looking at Daniel. Daniel 9 teaches us a day-year principle that when there's a day in prophecy, it stands for a year. But it's only an option. Because in Daniel chapter 8, a day stands for a day. And how do we find out when a day stands for a year if the Lord doesn't tell us? By the nature and terms of the prophecy itself. Just like we did in Daniel 9. How do you know that the 70 weeks in Daniel 9 are 70 weeks of years? How do you know? Because Messiah didn't come in a year and a quarter. Messiah didn't come for 483 years. Because it was 69 weeks until Messiah. Daniel chapter 7. You know, Revelation's the last place they ought to go. They ought to start in Daniel. Daniel's prophecies cover everything, and I've just shown you that. From chapter 8 on, it's all Jewish. Daniel chapter 8 is limited to the Greek Empire and what the two kingdoms did, especially Antiochus Epiphanes. Daniel 9 is the 70 weeks prophecy unto Messiah. Daniel 10 through 12, his last prophecy, starts with the Persian kings and extends to the destruction of Jerusalem. It tells you very plainly, Daniel 12, 7, I swear, the angel swore, that everything in Daniel 10, 11, and 12 would be fulfilled when the power of the holy people were scattered. And that was 70 A.D. Because it was Jewish. And in 70 A.D., the Jewish nation was over. Right. It's, so, it's so simple. When the Lord gives us starting points and end points, where's the starting point of Daniel's last prophecy? Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, it says, verse 2, And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. And then a fourth, so we can count back five and know what king of Persia was reigning when Daniel started the prophecy. When, when you have a starting point and end point, that's pretty exciting. Trust me, it's exciting. Because then you know everything has to fit in between the two. And you make it fit with history. Just like we make Daniel 9 fit in its 70 weeks. Daniel chapter 7 identified Paul's man of sin and John's beast and John's great whore and John's false prophet way back in Daniel. And it's wonderful to learn them. Daniel's four beasts are easy in the first few verses of Daniel 7. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Ever seen a picture of that symbol of the Chaldean and Babylonian empire in their own artwork? This is the first kingdom. This is the kingdom that Daniel was under. This is the first of the four kingdoms already given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 when he saw that image with a gold head. And Daniel said, Thou art that gold head. And so we get to start with Babylon. And then we have in verse 5, another beast like a bear. That's the media Persian empire. Why does it raise itself up on one side? Because it raised itself up by the Medes and then the Persians took over and become greater. 
Number six, verse six, num- empire number three, a leopard. That's a, that's an animal known for its speed. It had up on the back of it four wings. When you're, when you're like a leopard and you've got four wings, is that depicting slowness, terribleness, or speed? What's it depicting? Speed. speed. That's Alexander the Great. The beast had also four heads because it was divided very quickly after just a few years into the four kingdoms of Alexander's generals. And dominion was given to it. God gave Alexander the Great dominion to conquer the world from India to Liberia, Libya, in just a few years. Verse 7, after this. Now what beast do you think came up next? Rome. When we go back to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's image, the stone that was cut out without hands, that means it was a divine kingdom, smote the image in its feet, and it was the Roman Empire. That's when Jesus Christ came and first set up His kingdom. In the days of these kings, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Luke chapter 3 tells us that. The ten horns of the fourth beast are key. As Daniel looks at this great, terrible, dragon-type beast with teeth of iron in verse 7, he notices that it has ten horns in the last part of the seventh verse. In verse 8, I considered the horns. Now the horns are all there. They're all ten there, and it's very important for us to understand that. There were four horns that came up out of the Greek beast in chapter 8. The Greek beast being a he-goat that had a notable horn, Alexander, but when that notable horn was broken off, four sprang up for it so that it was a four-horned beast. Or, in this passage, because leopards typically don't have horns, if you can find one, I want to visit the zoo. Since leopards typically don't have horns, it has four heads. Right. At the same time, contemporary rulers because it's a fragmented empire and Rome turned into a fragmented empire in 476 AD when the Visigoths overran it and deposed the last emperor the eastern empire in Constantinople went on for another 600 years but not the western empire it was over and it broke into the fragments that we would still look at today and say that's Europe the ten horns are contemporary kingdoms or nations. This is a, this point is important as a starting place in the prophecy to stop preterists from vainly imagining consecutive Caesars growing out of that fourth beast. Because consecutive horns would be one horn came up and then it was plucked up or it fell off and then another horn would grow up. Because when the Lord wants to show you consecutive horns, that's exactly what He does. Is there a place we can turn in Daniel for consecutive horns? Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And it is the ram, which is the media Persian empire that Alexander would overthrow Daniel 8, 3, I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. If a person would just read the book of Daniel, it's so full of goodies. I mean, this is like being in a a cookie or a candy store as a child, or a Toys R Us, and wandering around with a big checkbook, because it's all free. Because God has given us this information free if we would just read. 
when Daniel, when Daniel looked at the fourth great beast, which is the Roman Empire, he saw ten horns coming out of its head. Because that beast, that single solitary empire, once ruled by the Caesars, had now splintered into fragments. Ten nations made up the territories, Britain being one of them, that had once been under the reign of the Caesars after Julius Caesar established a fort there in about 50 B.C. They're contemporary kingdoms. They're not consecutive as they appear together. This is a crucial point. The ten horns represent the beast splintered into ten nations or minor kingdoms in comparison to the massive beast that it had once been that dominated the world and stamped the residue of anything in its way. The Roman army marched with iron and crushed everything in its way. But now it is into four, it is into ten parts. Greece went into four. Rome went into ten. They are contemporary. So that when Daniel looks at the beast and sees ten horns, and then after those ten horns, sees an eleventh horn grow up among them, what is the earliest possible date for the little horn? 476 A.D. And that's too early, but that's as early as it could possibly be. Because the empire wasn't disbanded like that until the last emperor was overthrown in Rome. So the little horn's earliest existence was 476 A.D. when it would be a kingdom. Now the mystery of iniquity was already at work in the days of the Apostle Paul. But there was a restraining power keeping it back from taking a kingdom to itself and ruling with temporal and spiritual power over the Roman Empire or even part of it. The mystery of iniquity was already at work, but something was holding it back. What was holding it back? The emperors of the big dragon beast. They weren't going to give the bishop of Rome any authority over them or kings. They wanted that all for themselves. Not until they were taken out of the way, just as 2 Thessalonians 2 explains, those Caesars and emperors were taken out of the way, the the empire fell into fragmented nations, and then... After 476 A.D., a little horn grew up. This is very important because the little horn cannot be Vespasian. It cannot be Titus. It cannot be Nero. It cannot be Augustus. It cannot be Domitian. It cannot be any of those emperors or Caesars. Right. You say, well, I just get tired of reading about horns. Oh, no. Love horns. Love horns. In these kind of prophecies, love horns. And if you'll go home and read the book of Revelation, chapters 12, 13, 17, and 18, you're going to read about ten horns over and over, and all of a sudden, Daniel's going to turn a light bulb on in the room, and you're going to know what empire is under consideration. And then when you see a woman riding on its back, oh, sweet. Thank you, Lord. But we're not going to go to Revelation because to undo all their damages that they have done in the book of Revelation would take a whole lot more than the sermons that we're already taking. Just to get through this, at this point that I am belaboring, 
is so that you won't forget it. And there are young men in this room, and if you forget it because you want to memorize something else, you are not making your life count. At this point, preterists are dead in the water. For they imagine 11 consecutive Caesars. You ought to see the list they concoct to try to come up with Nero or Titus or Vespasian as number 11. But it doesn't matter. We blow the whole concept completely out of the water because the ten horns are contemporary and there were no ten horns until 476 A.D. But does that kind of timing fit well with where we're going to go? Absolutely. Absolutely. Rome did not disintegrate into this tenfold division of power until the fifth century. Therefore, the little horn and everything in Daniel 7 after verse 7 is after the fifth century. Do you understand that? Everything in Daniel after verse 7 is after the fifth century. Now, I do this hourly when I'm studying, but I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord because if it wasn't for Him, I wouldn't know anything. In school, I majored in girls, motorcycles, cars, and sports. I wouldn't know anything. I'm the biggest underachiever in education that the world has ever seen. But I thank God that He's shown a babe, and less than a babe, truth. And I love it. And you don't need to go to seminary to learn these things. You just need to read your Bible and like horns. And Daniel 8 tells you about the four horns, and so you get, you get the idea, because Daniel 8 simpler than Daniel 7 if you don't know history, but it's so easy to figure it out. The little horn tells us that everything in Daniel 7 is after the 5th century. There's nothing in Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12 further about this little horn, because this little horn came out of Rome, and it's dealing with the Gentiles. This is Gentile world history. From 8 to 12, five chapters of prophecies all about Israel. Daniel's people says so plainly. Preterism has already been refuted by the timing of Rome's decline in the ten powers. Do you understand now why we've gone to Daniel 7? But do you know what happens when you talk to a preterist about Daniel 7? Because after all, all I need is the time is at hand. You say you're not being very nice. I'm still being nicer than Elijah. I'm still being nicer than Jesus and Paul would be. Because do you know what kind of doctrines they deny? They deny the personal return of my Lord Jesus Christ to this atmosphere. They deny the resurrection of all dead physical bodies. They deny a great day of judgment in which we will stand before God and the wicked shall be cast into the lake of fire and the righteous shall be accepted in the presence of God and they deny the renovation of the universe with a new heaven and a new earth. I promise you that Jesus and Paul would have some choice things to say about them and they say them in First and Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul does, about turning them over to Satan to stop them from blaspheming. And their, and their profane and vain babblings. The little horn of Rome is key. This is the first indication in Scripture that there's a great enemy that's going to arise against the saints of the Most High God. Now the saints of the Most High God are not the Jews in Daniel chapter 7 because the saints of the Most High God in this prophecy receive the kingdom. The Jews throughout Daniel and everywhere else in the Bible lose the kingdom. That's a key. And it's so easy 
but you can certainly run over it if you're not paying attention. These are Gentile Christians, including some Jewish Christians, which there are very few of, but some Gentile Christians, because they receive the kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ, not lose the kingdom because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Matthew 21 and 22 describe the Jews losing their vineyard because it's given to a nation that will bring forth the fruits thereof. So the little horn. Why a little horn? Because the papacy started, the papacy, the popes, the kingdom of the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire, whatever you want to call it, because it started so small, all it was was a pastor in Rome. That's all it started with. That's small compared to the king of Britain and the king of Gaul or France. It started small. What is more Roman than the papacy? What can possibly be more Roman than the Roman Catholic... What kind of Catholic church is it called? Oh, the Roman Catholic Church. And where is its headquarters? Oh, it's in Rome. And what language do they use? Latin. Who in the world speaks Latin? The Romans did. The little horn did not get full authority until about the 6th, 7th, or 8th centuries where it had temporal power over nations and men. The little horn made war with the saints and prevailed for 1260 years. How do we know it's 1260 years? Because it says time, times, plural, and half a time, three and a half, with 360 days per year in a Jewish calendar for a Hebrew calendar for a Hebrew prophet. That's 1,260 in the book of Revelation. It's called times, times and half a time, 1,260 days and 42 months, all of which are the same thing. Just described differently. Now, how do we know it's a day for a year? Because how long did the Pope, the little horn of Rome, persecute the saints of the Most High God? For three and a half literal years or for 1,260 years? From approximately... 5 or 600 A.D. to approximately 17 or 1800 A.D. 1260 years. If you were a Bible Christian and you stood up and let your opinion be known that you were going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone was salvation and you hated Mary worship and you did not believe in transubstantiation that the little cracker became God and that you did not give any authority to the Pope that was in Rome but He was the Antichrist. Guess what happened to you? You died. And so they went and hid in the forests of Bohemia, in the mountains of Wales, in the mountains of northern Italy, the Waldensians, the Albigenses. They didn't misunderstand this prophecy. Why does everyone today, they knew exactly who they were opposing. They knew exactly why they were hiding in mountains to get away from that scourging, persecuting power of the Roman beast. If you'll go read Revelation 12, 13, 17, and 18 in the light of Daniel 7, you'll understand much of it. When is this little horn the beast it grew out of destroyed? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul preaches in 2 Thessalonians 2? Isn't that what John preaches in Revelation? It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who casts the beast into the lake of fire. Oh. There's so many things that could be said. Let me quickly run through some of the features of this little horn and what this chapter tells us. And let's just ask the question, could this be Vespasian? Oh, we've already answered that question. The little horn couldn't come up until 
nearly the 6th century. So it couldn't be Vespasian because he's already 500 years dead. So the, the little document that's being prepared for our website, this point is unnecessary. But it's not unnecessary for you. Think with me. It was a little horn. No Caesar could be called little when becoming absolute dictator of a world empire. But the popes began as the mere bishops of Rome and later ruled the world. It had eyes like those of a man. I I hope you've read this passage. Three times you should know it. Does it say that the little horn had the eyes of a man? Eyes here are intelligent oversight. And no Caesar ever matched the popes in sagacious, intelligent, far-seeing politics and conspiracies throughout their vast reaches. When you have thousands and thousands of priests in confessionals taking confessions, even from heads of state, it does serve your interests well. No Caesar ever had it so good. No king or president ever had a CIA as effective. The Jesuits everywhere since the 1500s, 1400s, swearing allegiance to the Pope as his little private army, infiltrating universities, everywhere they could get in. It was diverse from the other horns. No Caesar was truly diverse from the others. They're all pagan Romans and took the throne of the same kingdom. How were they diverse? Well, this was diverse because the Pope was certainly diverse from other temporal kingdoms because his was a religious or a spiritual kingdom that came into temporal power. Very different. It subdued three other kingdoms. No Caesar removed three other Caesars in order to take his office. But the popes of Rome, by various means, came into possession of several temporal kingdoms in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. One's called the Donation of Pepin. It's called the Senate and Dukedom of Rome. Now, now, Now think, you've got an emperor in Rome controlling the empire, the Visigoths overrun it, and the emperor's gone. There are territorial boundaries, small and large, large being Britain and Gaul, and other ones, and the Pope got three of them. We live so far from it, it's hard for us to identify exactly which three and at what time, but it's hardly necessary. Isaac Newton, Thomas Newton, and other... Isaac Newton, the scientist, oh yes, he wrote a commentary on Daniel 7 and the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation that we agree with because it was historicist, and he identifies the three as the ex-archate of Ravenna, the kingdom of the Lombards, and the Senate and Dukedom of Rome itself. The Pope took those over. Those were three of the ten horns because it was three of the fragments of the Roman Empire when all of a sudden there was a power vacuum and there was no emperor. It had a look more stout than his fellows. Was Vespasian more stout and proud and arrogant than the other Caesars? It certainly can't be proven from history. And how would it be so, how would he so distinguish himself by comparing himself to others who were quite stout in their look? But no one is as stout in his appearance as the popes of Rome. No one. The popes are, were, the popes have been carried about on litters and men have been forced to kiss their toes and they sit on thrones and in gaudy temples that no Caesar of Rome ever sat in. Have you ever seen the attire of a Caesar? He's wrapped in a bed sheet. He doesn't even wear a crown. Have you ever seen a Caesar? 
And a picture of a Caesar. Have you seen a picture of the Pope? Have you seen a picture of his temple? Have you seen a picture of his chair? Way up there on the wall, or did you forget already? I need slides, I know, because of short-term memory lapses. But remember St. Peter's chair way up there on the end of the Peter's St. Peter's Basilica? No one has exalted himself higher and had a stouter look than the popes of Rome, as this Daniel chapter 7 tells us about the little horn of Rome. It had a blasphemous mouth mentioned four times in this chapter. No Caesar, like Vespasian, was exceptionally blasphemous in comparison to other Caesars, but I can tell you about a man who's been more blasphemous than all the Caesars combined, and it's the popes of Rome. I am God on the earth. There is no salvation outside the Roman pontiff. I am the vicar of Jesus Christ. When I sit in the bishop's seat, I speak infallibly. And on and on we could go. There have been whole sermons preached on this subject. There have been whole, there's been books written on this subject, but it's hard to even find them nowadays. But there is a little book because it's got a little section, section four, that is a very concise and well documented from the Bible and from history about the little horn of Rome and the man of sin. And that is why I make it so available. And though we do not agree with everything in there, and we certainly do not agree with many of the stands, doctrinally and practically, of the author, that doesn't matter. This work that he put together 42 years ago, in his youth, is well done. And I thank the Lord for it. We don't approve of everything King James believed. We don't approve of the church that he came, he was part of. But we certainly appreciate the way God used him to give us our King James Bibles. This little horn would think to change times and laws. What, what times and laws matter here? What times and laws are under consideration? Since that's found in verse 25, and on both sides of it, we are reading about the great, the most high, and we are reading about the saints of the most high. These are not Roman times and laws, nor Greek times and laws, nor British times and laws. These are God's times and laws. And He has done everything in His power to turn them upside down. There are countless changes that He's made. And I will try to mention some of them in the Second Assembly, because I threw together a little informal list of some of those changes that He's made over the 1,500 years. Unbelievable stuff. Unbelievable superstition. The Caesars never did that. They never corrupted a single Christian doctrine. They couldn't have. Nobody would even listen to them. Thought to change times and laws. Rome's made hundreds and likely thousands of changes to the gospel that we find in our New Testaments. It shall war against the saints and wear them out. No Caesar lived long enough. Nero's persecution was only about three years long. He reigned from 54 to 68 A.D. He didn't start persecuting Christians till around 64. He didn't wear anyone out. The church exploded. It just kept on growing. But for 1,260 years, it wore people out. Constantly being persecuted and chased down by inquisitors and by the Roman church. And if you did business and if you were, if you were spotted by another citizen, they were going to report you. Because you couldn't buy or sell under the reign of the Pope if you were a Bible Christian. Right. Because they did everything to exterminate you. 
The Bible was a forbidden book. If you had a Bible, you were already marked as a criminal against the state. Popes drove Christians into hidings for, into hiding for centuries. It shall dominate the saints for three and a half years. The saints were under the persecuting dominion of the popes for 1260 years. And we take that liberty in the day-year principle of prophetic interpretation from chapter 9, where we are forced to by history fulfilling it for us and telling us that. It shall be consumed by God's judgment at the end. It'll be consumed, and then it'll be destroyed. It'll be consumed. It'll be shrunk, restrained. Its power partially taken away by the spirit of his mouth, which is by the preaching of the gospel, which is by dealt a blow to the man of sin from which he shall never recover from. And then the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear and the man who thinks he's Christ on earth is going to find out that there's one greater than he. A whole lot greater than he. And all of his mariolatry and all of his relics and all of his vestments and all of his rosaries aren't going to do him a bit of good. He can be begging for Mary to help him now and at the hour of his death. But Jesus Christ is not going to hear any such prayer. Second Thessalonians 2 teaches it and Daniel 7 teaches it right here. Because you see the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days set, the judgment begins, the books are opened. Does that sound familiar with anywhere else you read in the Bible? It's a horrible shame. It is a horrible shame that the vast majority of Christians have rushed to the ditches of futurism or preterism, leaving the road of historicism which our faithful fathers traveled and gave their lives for for 1,200 years. They understood the little horn of Rome. They understood that there was going to be a war that went on and on and on and on. But they would not leave the faith. And they knew who their enemy was. And they knew the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And you know, let me close with this verse. Daniel chapter 7, <laughs> verse 18. It's not the only time it's mentioned here. It's one of the three times it's mentioned But they understood this as well. Though their fathers and their grandparents, if they had a Christian family of several generations, had been persecuted by this little horn of Rome, they knew what was coming. And here's what they knew was coming. Verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom. Who is going to be the eventual winner? The saints of the Most High. And we are having a little private meeting of them today. The saints of the Most High are in this room being reminded of what our ancestors in the faith endured for 1260 years. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Is that long enough for you? Who's going to overthrow a kingdom that lasts forever? Well, the Lord wants you to be a little more sure than that. So He put even forever and ever. Praise His name. Every enemy's been vanquished. It's just for the Lord to put them all under His feet. And then He'll deliver up the kingdom of God to His Father. And He will be subject to His Father. And we shall reign with Him forever and ever and ever. Not for a thousand years. Forever and ever 
And no one shall destroy our kingdom. And no one shall take our kingdom. Though our kingdom shall destroy and dash in pieces all previous kingdoms. This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the little horn of Daniel 7. The little horn of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church and its popes. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from such heresy. Amen.